Well, good morning. It's, it's good to be here. It's good to be back. I've been gone for the last two weeks. Um, one week because I was under the weather. Uh, but that was in the distant past, so no worries. And then the other week, uh, last weekend, Miller College of the Bible had their kickoff uh, in their, for their Winnipeg campus. And we've had our first year of class, which has been busy and really good. So it's good to see, yeah, woo! It's good to see all your faces uh, again, and it's good to be, uh, be with you this morning. So we're in John 9, John chapter 9. I think we left off at chapter 6, if I'm not mistaken. And just to remind you, we're not uncomfortable with John 7 or 8, but this is a series on the miracles of Jesus. So inevitably, you know, you end up skipping some things that are, uh, that are maybe the in-betweens. So I'd encourage you to go and read John 7 and 8. They're great as well. And I've entitled the sermon this morning, have you, sorry, You Have Seen Him. And this is actually taken from the text. And I think it represents sort of the climax of the, of the text. And I hope you'll see why this morning. I've chosen that as the, the climax of the text. Can you see or are you blind? What would you say if somebody asked you that question? It's like, of course I can see, right? Or, of course I'm blind. Like, are you rubbing it in, <laughs> right? Depending on your seeing, your sighted status. Um, But would you say you have spiritual sight? Would you say you have spiritual understanding and perception? Are you a spiritual person? Have you heard that before? I'm a a spiritual person. Typically what we mean is we have some some perception, some understanding. And as, as believers in Christ, I hope you would say, yes, I have spiritual sight. And this text deals with the question of what is spiritual sight? What does it mean to be a spiritual person? What does it mean to really have understanding and, and wisdom when it comes to spiritual things? And, and what do you think about world religions and other spiritual traditions or leaders? Are, are they onto something? Have, have, they seen, have they seen some of the truth? Do they have spiritual sight to some degree? Or would we call them blind? And how might you evaluate that? And so our mission today is, is to end up in a place where we are relying on Jesus as our true shepherd and as the only source of spiritual sight. It is not a popular thing to say in Canada these days, is it? We live in what's called a pluralistic society. Um, And we're going to deal today with the nation, if any, if any nation on earth should have spiritual sight, which one would it be? It would be the, the nation of Israel, right? God's chosen people, the one to whom the oracles of God were committed and through whom the Messiah would come. And so this makes a great test case for us as we see Jesus uh, going, going to battle, really, against the spiritual shepherds of Israel, who if anybody on the whole earth should know and should see, it would be them. This is a great, great test case um, to see Jesus as our, as our only source. So let's pray, and then we'll dig into the text. Lord God, we thank you uh, for, for drawing us together this morning. Thank you that we live in a country uh, where we are not sent to jail this Sunday because of uh, gathering, and we thank you that we have no fear for our lives, uh, but we thank you that, that you have given us sight to see the importance of gathering, to see the importance of opening your word together, and Lord, I pray uh, that you would give us sight, give us sight in your word as we, as we seek to see the face of your Son, in Jesus' name, amen. You know, can you turn down my game just a little bit? Thanks. All right, so, whoa. all right, here we go. Okay, we're good. 
So before we dig into chapter 9, we should probably back, back up a bit into chapter 8, because it's actually pretty important to understand the context of chapter 9. And even though I've been assigned chapter 9 to preach on, I can't really preach on chapter 9 without going to 8 and 10. Okay, so we're in for like a lot of text today. I'm just giving you fair warning. Uh, chapter 8, though, ends in this way. Jesus has, has just had a debate um, in the temple with the Pharisees. And they said, Abraham is our father. And he says, well, no, if Abraham were your father, you would believe in me. Because Abraham was a man of faith. And I am God's man. I am God himself made flesh. So Abraham looked at me and believed, and you don't. So that makes you not children of Abraham, which is highly insulting. And so they, they slash back in, in chapter 8, verse 48. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? <laughs> They're slinging it right back, right? Um, and he says, I don't have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Um, and, and so Jesus continues on with a remarkable claim. In verse 58, he says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. A direct claim of being an eternal, uh, well, being the eternal deity, really. I preceded Abraham. And he put his faith in me. And everybody knows, in Genesis it says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. This is a direct claim of the divinity of Christ. And so naturally, they know how to respond to this. Verse 59, so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself, and he went out of the temple. So by the time we arrive in the first verses of chapter 9, Jesus is on the run. He's a fugitive. For his, on the run for his life, right? You don't pick up stones to, to give somebody a, uh, like a full body rub or anything like that, right? This isn't an exfoliation treatment. They're trying to kill him. And it's remarkable then, as we get into chapter 9, verse 1, how casually things seem to proceed. But don't be fooled. This is still very much a heated context, and the debate is still very much raging, all right? So we continue to read 9, verse 1, as he passed by, as he passed by, He's fleeing for his life out of, out of the temple. And he happens to see someone. And what does he do? He's like, I'll get back to you later. I'm on the run. No, he stops. He says he saw a man blind from birth and his disciples asked him. So his disciples, they've been kind of absent from the conversation for a while. And it seems that they've rejoined him. So there might be a little bit of time, right, between fleeing the temple. But this does seem to be, in the text anyway, the very next event. And so his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And, uh, all right, there we go. So really, this is a misplaced question. This is the wrong question. Um, it's a good question, but it has wrong assumptions. So let's, let's walk through it. Um, the, the question of uh, really who Jesus is and whether whether you see him at rightly with your spiritual sight, uh, doesn't begin with a question of the identity of Jesus. It begins with the question of the nature of this man's blindness. What's the cause? What's the cause of blindness? Whose sin was it? And so really they're, they're doing two things, the disciples, when they ask this question. Um, All right, so who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So the first thing they're doing is they're reflecting common understanding of the time. 
which Rodney Whitaker says it like this, people commonly assumed that disease and disorders on both the personal and national level were due to sin, as summarized in the rabbinic saying from around A.D. 300, and probably quoting a tradition that goes back prior to that, that, quote, there is no death without sin, agree, right? Uh, And there is no suffering without iniquity. Well, that's true, isn't it? We live in a fallen world. The wages of sin is death. But there's something missing from this. And, And so, really, this is the conflict. Do people suffer innocently? Now, as a Christian, you should have at least two examples in, of, in, uh, in your mind, in Scripture, that will help correct this universal concept that every time you see suffering and death, it's because that person sinned, right? Job would be one example. And a, a man who, whose suffering is, though he's not sinless, it does say he's blameless, right? He doesn't engage in the, in the sins that plague his generation. And all the way through, the narrator is consistent that this man is blameless and upright before God, and he's in the right. So what is God doing? He's proving a point in heaven. He's showing that God does not have to buy friends with blessings, but that people will serve him for nothing. God is is worthy of glory, even if he gives you nothing in return. Okay. Which is very key when you start seeing Jesus hanging on the cross later in this book. Here's a man who's suffering and dying. Who sinned, that man or his parents? Neither. This is happening for the glory of God. This is the work of God, and it's happening because God is accomplishing something, right? He's doing something for his own purposes, for his own glory, and it doesn't have a causal relationship with sin. Now, not with his sin. It has a causal relationship with your sin. But the disciples are falling into this this common thinking that whenever you see somebody who's suffering, clearly they are a sinner. Right? They better get that out of their heads if they're going to understand the cross correctly. Um, and secondly, what they're doing very interestingly is, is actually really positive. Who would know the answer to this question? If somebody came to you with somebody who's sick and asked you the question, whose sin was it, this person or their parents? Which, how would I know? So what does the question assume? That Jesus is God. Only God knows who sinned and how that worked itself out in this man's life. So the disciples are doing two things at once. They're making a mistake and they're seeing things rightly in, in different angles, right? Uh, so Jesus, he, he would love to answer this kind of question, right? Let's talk about sin and suffering, the relationship between sin and death. Later on, he'll say, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. And then let's talk about my divinity, Good. So, let's keep reading. And so Jesus makes this a question not of sin and causality, but one of glory. uh, A question of glory. And so, let's keep reading. Uh, Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So what is his answer? God did this to this man to display God's mighty work in his life. So they're asking a question of cause and he he is answering it. 
He's saying the reason this is here is that God has a plan. This is part of the plan of God. And so does God cause babies to be born blind? Um, Apparently the answer is sometimes yes. Sometimes yes. And in the case of this man, the answer is yes. And it's so that Jesus could heal him. And that he might glorify God for the grace in his life. And he might see for the first time, not only with his eyes, but that he might meet the Messiah as the first person who he sees. It's a beautiful thing. And does God take credit for this kind of thing elsewhere in the scriptures? Uh, He does. Isaiah 45, he says, I form light and I create darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. And the word for calamity there is ra in Hebrew, also sometimes translated evil. So God takes credit. He's not like once evil's in the picture, God can have no plan anymore. God is capable of being in situations where there's both good and evil. And like Joseph said, you planned this for evil, but God planned it for good. Same event, same calamity. God has designs for good, and mankind has designs for evil. So God is in no way sinning. He is in no way evil, but he's certainly capable of using the evil and the sin in the world for his own glory. Absolutely. Um. And yet, the, the question of the disciples is based on a misunderstanding of human sin, that it's always divine justice. And so this has been addressed in Job, uh, that innocent people do suffer for reasons other than their own sin. And, and the answer is here, that the works of God might be displayed. And so there is a sense um, in which every aspect of our lives, including our own suffering, is an occasion for God to show his own glory and his own purposes. And so back to Rodney Whitaker, he says, Scripture uh, describes four types of suffering viewed in terms of causes or purposes. First, suffering as a proving or testing of our faith. Genesis 22, Deuteronomy 8 in the book of Job. Second, suffering is meant for improvement or for our edification in Hebrews 12. Third, suffering as a punishment for sin. That is a, that's a valid category. In Deuteronomy 32, Jeremiah 30, and John 5. And fourth, suffering that shows forth God's glory, as here in our story and later in the raising of Lazarus. And there's a fifth form of suffering, that which comes from bearing witness to Christ, illustrated by what happens to this former blind man in being cast out of the synagogue. So his suffering does not end when he's healed. He's in fact excommunicated, another kind of suffering, uh, for the sake of the name of Christ. And so the way that Jesus really answers their question is with a miracle. They were not asking for a miracle, right? They just want to know causality. And so Jesus' answer does go on. And so he, having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Yeah. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to them, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. So Jesus is, is going way beyond the original question. And so the miracle has a specific meaning. This is Jesus' answer to the question not only of who caused, or what caused the blindness, but also to the questions of the debate that's been going on in the temple. Is Jesus God? Is he the Son of Man who came to lay down his life for the sheep? Is he who he says he is? And the answer, really, the ultimate answer in this text is later on, and the man believes and worships Jesus, um, showing that he now truly sees. So God wants, to, uh, God wants to use this man's blindness not only to give sight 
and show that God can do amazing works, but that the ultimate uh, sight is to see and believe in Jesus. Now, this Siloam uh, probably comes from the Hebrew word uh, shalach with, uh, with some extra endings. And interesting that, the, that John, the narrator, tells you what this means. That tells you John is not just interested in telling you where, the, where this miracle happened or where the man was told to go and wash. He wants you to associate this miracle with the meaning of the pool of Siloam. Why might that be? Because Jesus has been sent from the Father. And you need to recognize that. This is the, this is the Son of Man, sent to seek and save the lost. And so there's, he sends the man out to the pool to show and demonstrate that he really is the only begotten Son of God, um, sent from the Father's side. And to strengthen this point, that Jesus comes from the, the very bosom of the Father. Remember in John 1, we read in the introduction to this book that uh, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, right? And we have seen His glory. And what do we learn about the Word? That all things were made through Him. And so what is this weird mud-spit combo all about? Uh, probably my best guess is that Jesus is, is reshaping this man like He shaped the original Adam, Right? He's the one who, who can create sight out of mud. He can give the, he can give the breath of life into, into a lump of mud that he's shaped with his, with his hands, and it becomes alive. And that's what he's doing with this man. He's not just healing his eyes, right? Isn't he breathing new life into his soul so the man can look at him and say, you're him, you're my Messiah, you're, you're my God. That's really what he's up to here. Uh, he's bringing you back to the garden, uh, I think. All right. So Jesus makes his point, and then we get a whole bunch of more wrong questions. People do not know what to do. Huh? All right. So this is like the fallout. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some, some said, it is he, and others said, no, but he's like him. You notice, who is it has, has a sight problem now? They can't figure out, they don't recognize the guy. They're like, huh, what? Everyone else seems to like be pretty squinty-eyed. Um, he, he kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how are your eyes opened? Again, it's a question what? Of cause, Right? The disciples, they want to know, what caused the blindness? Now everybody wants to go, what causes sight? And what, the question is totally wrong. They should be asking, who did this? Why did he do it? And what should I learn from that? Right? That's not the question. It's, they, it's just it's simply like scientific inquiry. Well, let's see about this. It's a, let's put it in the lab. Right? Uh, keep going. He answered... The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes, interesting use of words, and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received my sight. He's answering the question, but it doesn't make any sense. It's like, are you saying that you just put mud on blind people's eyes who are born blind, who have never seen, they've never made those neural connections in their brain, the, the optic nerve has never functioned? You're saying just a little spit in mud, right? That's not an answer. They're not happy with this. Um, now, it was a, oh, so they, they brought the Pharisee, uh, to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. And this is really critical. Who do you turn to when you, when you can't explain things? When you, when you see a miracle or when you see suffering, when you have a spiritual question, who do you turn to? Who's your shepherd? 
And for these people, and, and rightly so, the, the recognized shepherds of Israel are the Pharisees. And so they'll know what to do. They, they know the ways of God. They know the word, words of God. They'll know what to do. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. And you can see, if you've been reading the book of John, you see where this is going. Don't you? Jesus made mud on the Sabbath? <gasps> that not that I mean, you can just see it coming, right? Because they've already, they've already focused on such a small detail... Of, of human law breaking, like man made additions to the law when Jesus healed the lame man and he picked up his mat and walked. They're like, you made him pick up his mat? Um, they are, I mean, if you're wondering if the Pharisees are going to be able to sort this out correctly and if, and if their priorities are straight, John's giving you a hint. <laughs> you can just see it coming. So, oh, did we do two? I think my clicker might be working. There we go. So the Pharisees... No. Go back one. No, we got that one. Okay, keep going. Sorry. I'm going to just forget the clicker. You do it. Okay. All right, so we'll go to the next one. Yeah, so the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. Again, a question of causation. And, they, and he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Now, what they mean by that is he doesn't keep the rabbinic law of the Sabbath. He, he's not doing anything against the Sabbath law um, in the Old Testament. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? See, they also have this idea that not only sinners, sinners, sinners are the type of people who would be born blind and who would have suffering in their life, but they would also lack the power of God. And, and that is, it's kind of a misconception, but they make it anyway. Um, how can a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So there's an argument. Um, not a question of, hey, what would it mean? If a miracle that's never been done in the history of the world is done in such a remarkable way by a man who claims to be God, who we've never been able to catch an actual sin, right? Who, who seems to have love and courage when he speaks. He speaks the truth. Not what would that mean, but, well, we don't buy that explanation, but we just know he's a sinner. So it just can't be. It's really in denial. Um, next slide. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he's opened your eyes? <laughs> so since nobody has a good answer, and this is a great technique, you know, if you need to pass the buck, be like, if you're the president of a company, you're like, I'm going to let my vice president handle this and see if he's uh, ready for a promotion, right? Like, you think, I'm going to pass the buck. What's your opinion? And so now they've gone from causation to the opinions of other people because they really don't know what to do with this. And he said he is a prophet. Why would he say that? Why would he say he's a prophet? Because he heard the conversation between the disciples and Jesus. Right? So a prophet is somebody who speaks the words of God, knows the mind of God, and delivers God's words, and then they come to pass. And so the question was, and I'm sure the blind man was quite interested to hear the answer, who sinned, this man or his parents? Neither. God's going to do something here. And then he puts mud on his eyes and tells him to wash in the pool. And sure enough, when he washes in the pool, he can see. Every word that Jesus spoke was true. This man is clearly a prophet. If Jesus was wrong, 
and it was this man's sin or his parents' sin. And God was not willing to give him sight because of the sin. Then Jesus wouldn't have been able to heal him. If God did not agree with his son, if the father and the son disagree on this, right? If the father and this Messiah claimant uh, are not in agreement, God would not have allowed such a miracle to take place in Israel. And so he says he's, he's a prophet. And probably what he means is he's starting to think he is the prophet to come. He, he seems to have the mind of God. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked him, Is this your son whom you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And his parents answered, and they're really just evading the question, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but now, how he sees now, we do, not, uh, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he'll speak for himself, passing the buck. And then the explanation comes, next verse. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ or the Messiah, he was to be put out of the synagogue. This is really early in church history, right? I mean, the big, the big divide between Christianity and Judaism is already, is already starting to form. You want to put your faith in Jesus, you get kicked out of the synagogue. The same is true today. If you're a Jew today and you put your faith in Christ, you're dead to your family, you're out of the synagogue, they will not talk to you again. So this, is, this has been a 2,000-year tradition. And his parents said, so he's of age, ask him. In other words, don't put this on us. We had nothing to do with this. All right, so for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. And that is the point of the miracle. We know that this man is a sinner. What are they looking for? They're looking for the man to just go, yeah, you're right. You know, he's, he's probably, I wouldn't worry about this Jesus guy. He's no threat to you. He's probably not the real, he's just a healer. It's just an accident. They're looking for, for him to excuse their blindness. And at and this point, it's willful blindness. They can see what's happened. They verified the man's identity and the veracity of the miracle, and they just don't like the conclusion because they just tried to stone Jesus as a blasphemer. They're not going to change their minds. At this point, they've put blinders on, and they're trying to pass the buck so that he can justify their blindness for them. And so he says, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Now we're just rehashing the same things over and over again. Uh, and he answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. In other words, you're not only blind, but you can't hear either. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And this is snarky, I'm telling you. He, his parents know that if you confess Christ, you're going to be put out of the synagogue. And he's just like, oh, you, like, you're going to start a, start a Christian church? Maybe Jesus' disciples? Like, you seem pretty interested in this Jesus guy. And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. Uh, and, and this strikes at the heart of the book of John as well. Go to John chapter 1. This is John proving his thesis statement over again. 1 verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, right? Moses asked to see God, and God said, no, you can see my, my backside as I walk away from the cave that you're in, but I won't show you my, my front parts. 
the only God who is at the Father's side or the Father's bosom, at literally the Father's front parts, here, the Son that's, that's here, where Moses was denied. Moses could, could see the back. Jesus comes from the front. He has made him known. So Jesus is the one who has seen God and is superior to Moses in that respect. Moses was a, was a servant of God, not never a son of God. And in, in the highest praise that Moses gets, it says that he was a, a servant. At that moment where he, God could have praised him as a son, um, the highest praise Moses receives in the Torah is that he's a servant of God. God's servant. And so John is proving his thesis statement here. This man is a disciple of Jesus. They are disciples of Moses. Which one would you rather be? And John is trying to egg you on. Hey, guess what? Moses is great. Jesus is better. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. Next slide. The man answered, why? This is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. Like, this is a guy who's done a miracle that's never before been seen in the whole world, he says later on. Um, and, and he's walking around Israel for, for a while now, and you still haven't figured out where he comes from? You don't know if he's from God? We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. Now, blind people have been healed, but not people who are born blind, right? If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. In other words, God would not allow such great miracles to be done in Israel in the name of a false messiah. We believe in a God who's sovereign enough to put a stop to that. They answered him, you were born in utter sin. There's their evaluation. And they're going to misunderstand the cross too. And, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Interestingly, there's maybe a bit of a wordplay here with this cast him out. It's a different word in Greek. But the concept of Siloam, sent, right? It's also um, the, the Hebrew word that it comes from. It's also used for throwing things out or casting metal um, it is a, it's a casting out or a throwing, ascending, a great name for a spring of water that feeds a pool, right? A casting out, a, a spurting out. And so ironically, Siloam summarizes not only the healing of this man because he met the one that God has sent, and he's been sent to the pool that's appointed by him, but now he is himself sent out of the synagogue. And so he becomes aligned with Christ even more closely in his suffering this second time. <clears throat> So it seems that their, their main problem is that Jesus made mud on the Sabbath, but really it's, it's the fact that they just know that Jesus is God and they don't want to see it. So they, the, the verdict that they, that they come up with is that Jesus can't be from God because he made mud on the Sabbath. The man confesses him as a prophet. The parents are evasive. The man mocks the shepherds of Israel, throws it in their face, and then... He says, this is something I've experienced that no one has ever experienced before in the history of the world. It's amazing. And, and now let's, let's look at some of the Bible background here. So there are very few healings of blind people in the Bible. Um, the only person to heal blind people in the Bible is Jesus. Um, a few times in his earthly ministry. And, uh, and then arguably after Saul is healed from his encounter with Jesus, Jesus is the one to blind somebody as well. Um, in Acts 9. And, and I think uh, that's a side note, but if you're reading Acts 9, just know that 
that Saul did meet the real Jesus because he has the power both to blind and to appoint the, the place to go for healing, right? Just like in our passage today. Um, it was the true Jesus. But God is the giver of sight. Over and over again in the Old Testament, we see this. Uh, for example, in Numbers 22, verse 31, you don't have to turn there. I'm going to rapid fire these. The Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his sword drawn in his hand. And he bowed down and fell on his face. Balaam was a, a prophet, a pagan prophet, who was supposed to curse Israel. And his, uh, his donkey simply would not go down the path until the Lord opened his eyes to show him the angel of the Lord standing in his way and realized why his donkey wouldn't go. This is a man, uh, the ancient Hebrew word for a prophet is actually seer, some, someone who sees, roe, roe. Somebody whose eyes have been opened. And that's how Balaam describes himself in his prophecies. I whose eyes have been opened. And so this man who is a seer is hired by a, a pagan king and, and is supposed to curse Israel. By the end, he realizes he's been blind. Not only to the angel of the Lord standing in his path, but also the fact that the Lord is not willing to curse. The Lord is willing to bless. And so almost involuntarily at the end of his prophecies in Numbers 22, Balaam blesses instead of cursing uh, and this huge climactic blessing. And so the very first uh, blind man healed is probably Balaam. Um, in Second Kings 6, Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots and fire all around Elisha. This young man has been tempted to believe that they are alone. And Elisha says, give him sight. And what does he mean? He means spiritual sight. Let him see what's really going on. Let him see the heavenly realities. Then, in Psalm 119.18, the psalmist prays, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Psalmist assumes that if God doesn't give you spiritual sight to understand what's in the Bible, you won't see it. And so you need to pray. When you read your Bible, Lord, open my eyes. I'm just a blind human. I'm going to miss so much. Would you show me wondrous things in your law? Because they're there, but I will miss them unless you grant me my prayer. Psalm 146, 8, The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. Isaiah 35, 3-7, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. You think the Pharisees knew this passage? Your God himself will come. And at that time, the blind will receive their sight. These are the spiritual shepherds of Israel who know the word. And they, they know what Jesus' healing of the blind should mean. And they reject it. It says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In this passage, blindness is equated with a desert land, and, and the sight that the Lord gives, spiritual sight, is equated with streams in that desert. It's a beautiful picture. Um, and then for your, your Sunday study later on, read Isaiah 42 and John 9 together, and you'll see that Jesus is just fulfilling this whole passage in spades, and unfortunately we don't have time to go there uh, today. But... I guess this is the question. Are we okay with God being the one to, to blind or to give sight? All for the sake of his glory in human lives. Are we ready to view suffering 
uh, as an opportunity for the grace of God to be demonstrated in our lives or the lives of those who are dear to us. The Old Testament consistently says God alone is the one who can blind or give sight. Jesus comes and he, he's able to do the same. Are you okay with that? Are you okay with seeing in your Bible reading what the Lord wants to reveal to you? Or is it all about how smart you are and how you can scientifically diagnose or how you can slice and dice and reason? Ultimately, um, scripture interpretation is a spiritual exercise. It's not a science. It's, it's not a rational pursuit. It's not a dry academic discipline. When you open your Bible, you come as someone who's blind and you pray like the psalmist, open my eyes so I can see wondrous things in your word. And of course, the first thing he wants to show you is Jesus and him crucified in your place. All right. So the real question. Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? This is a, a title from the book of Daniel, this messianic divine figure. He answered, he said, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? So Jesus asked his own question. What question is Jesus asking? Do you believe in the Messiah, the coming Messiah? And he says, who is he? Jesus said to him, you have seen him. You have seen him. And what does he mean by that? He's not just saying you've looked at him with your eyes, right? He sees, just like he saw whether or not there was sin that was bringing the blindness in the first place, he sees, I'm transforming this man's heart. I have an intention not just to heal his physical blindness, I'm giving him spiritual sight. So when he says, you have seen him, this man is being declared regenerate, saved. And what's the very first fruit? It is he who's speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, then he worshiped him. Jesus just reaches in and heals the eyes of his heart. And that's really the heart of the, of the miracle. And so Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Who are those who claim to see? It's the Pharisees. It's everyone who doesn't realize their own blindness, who says, like all the world religions and all of those you know, new age friends that you have, like, oh, I have spiritual perception. I can see things. Or, or someone who's in a, in, in a um, sort of in a hyper-charismatic state where they have a very high view of their own spirituality and perception of everything. And, and the real key piece in their life is their spiritual attunement, um, the Reiki healer, healers, the, the yoga masters, right? The, the tarot card readers, uh, all the other world religions, they claim to have sight. They claim to have sight, do they? Well, according to this passage, they have sight if they have looked at Christ, not only with their physical eyes, but with the eyes of their heart being open and said, Lord, I believe and worship. That's the definition of sight that you can get from this passage. If you claim to see, if you claim to have any spiritual sight at all, is your sight focused on Christ and Him crucified? Is your faith in the Son of Man? And do you worship Him? That's the only question to be asked. So there's all kinds of sight that is not sight at all. And the Pharisees heard Him uh, say these things and they said, Are we also blind? See, they understood exactly what He's saying. So you're saying we're blind? Another one? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. What is Jesus saying? He's saying if you're blind, the best path forward is to admit that you're blind. Stop fighting it. You know you've been asking circular questions. 
you know that all the questions you're asking are the wrong questions and you can't get any satisfying answers, why don't you pray like the psalmist, open my eyes that I might behold wonderful things. Your word made flesh. Why not pray that prayer? Instead, you say, I see and I'm a guide to the blind and you yourself are blind. <clears throat> so the real question is, who is Christ and how do you respond to him? We have two competing visions in this passage. So Jesus is either a heretic worth stoning, 8 verse 58 to 59, a rabbi, 9-2, a lawbreaker, not from God, 9-16, a sinner, 9-24, of unknown origin and authority, 9-29 to 30, demon-possessed and insane in chapter 10, 20 to 21, or he's a prophet sent by God and doing his works, 9 verses 3, 3 to 4. The light of the world, 9 verse 5. Righteous miracle worker, 916. Prophet, 917. The Messiah, 922. Able to give knowledge better than that of the teachers of Israel, 934. Worth being excommunicated for, 934. Daniel, son of man, 935. Worthy of our faith and worship, 938. Giver of justice and judgment, 939. A sacrificial offering for their sins in chapter 10, 11. The Good Shepherd in 10.14. The One Who Truly Knows the Father in 10.15. The Son of God loved by the Father for laying down His life to bring salvation in 10.17. Possessing the ability to decide to live or die, 10.18. And this man's response is, I'm going to go with B. I'm going to go with B. Lord, I believe. And he worshipped Him. So Jesus came to the world to give sight to His own and to take sight from those who already claim to have it, i.e. the fake shepherd's of Israel. And 9 verse 39 is the story in a nutshell. Jesus says, For judgment I came into this world that those who, may, who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And so the, the blind man can see, and the Pharisees are blind because they don't see Jesus. Now, I mentioned that chapter 9, you shouldn't read it in a, apart from chapter 8 and chapter 10. I won't do a full exposition of chapter 10. Um, chapter 10 is, is a doctrinally rich sermon for another, uh, sorry, passage for another sermon. Um, but fundamentally, when you dip into chapter 10, you'll notice in chapter 941, Jesus said, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see your guilt remains. 10 verse 1, truly, truly, I say to you, it's the same discourse. He who does not enter by the sheepfold, uh, enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they did not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying. And so he carries on. And then in verse 19, there was again a division among the Jews because of these words. What did they mean again a division? Well, it's because in, at the end of chapter 9, there was a division among the Jews based on the words of this blind man. And in 10.20, it says, Many of them said, He has a demon. He's insane. Why listen to him? Right? Option A. Others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? You notice the conversation is still going on through chapter 10. Chapter 10 is not just a chapter in a systematics textbook. It's the explanation of what would it mean if everyone's blind except that those who recognize and follow and hear the voice of Jesus. It means that all other shepherds are false shepherds. 
It means that those who claim to have spiritual understanding and are not pointing you to, to Christ, they haven't seen a thing. And so there's a very famous passage here. It says in 1010, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Who is the thief? You're probably used to thinking Satan, right? No, not at all. He's already named it. It says here in 10 verse 1, Uh, He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. The thieves and the robbers that come to steal, kill, and destroy are the Pharisees. People of Israel go to them because they're supposed to have spiritual sight, and they, they claim to have spiritual sight, but they don't know Jesus. This is a sober word for you as parents and for us as pastors, and as we look at the spiritual landscape of our country. It is not the case that world religions around us or that other spiritualities have seen a glimpse of the truth and they're all helpful in their own way. They have come to steal, kill, and destroy. And if I, as a pastor, lead you in any direction other than to the face of Jesus, to confessing him as the Son of Man who came to lay down his life as the good shepherd that he claims to be in chapter 10, I'm just a thief. I'm just a hired hand who will abandon the sheep when it gets tough. In, a, in an ultimate sense, only Jesus is the shepherd of this church because he's the only one who's laid down his life for the sheep. And so it's a sobering word. As you raise your children, as you look at your own life, you who are spiritual, what does your spirituality consist? Does it consist of glorifying, believing, and worshiping Christ? Or does it consist of all the explanations and the questions and the knowledge that you've accumulated and the prestige of being a spiritual person? So the thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy is a reference to human spiritual leaders who will point you away from Christ. And so if you have seen him, as this man has seen him, um, you see, spiritually speaking, because it's a work of God in your life. Wasn't that the whole point of this man being born blind? That the works of God may be displayed in him? And so what I want us to recognize as a church is that Though there's this man who is the only one who's been healed, being blind from birth, all of us are born blind. Is it not true? All of us are born blind. From birth, spiritually speaking. We've been born blind from birth. And so if you see, if you have any sight at all, if you see Jesus this morning, if you see him as your only hope, it's because of a work of God in your life. And you need to believe and worship him. Um, if you've heard about Christ but have not believed in worship, don't claim to be anything but, but blind. So we need to check our own souls if we claim to have spiritual understanding. Um, we need to have compassion on the blind like Jesus did. Jesus was not just interested in knowing the answers about spiritual blindness. He wanted to provide healing. And we can do that by pointing others to Christ so that they might also see him. Um, and then also when God does something miraculous, the question to ask is not how, but what does this mean and what can I learn? So this is true of the doctrines of regeneration, which I preached on here. The question is not how does it work? The question is, Lord, how can I glorify you by what, through what you've done? Um, the sovereignty of God in salvation, the incarnation of Christ, the miracles of Christ, and also the suffering in your own life. The first question out of our mouth should not be what caused this or how did it happen? 
you can ask those questions. But the first concern is, Lord, I know that you, you work all things to your glory. How do you want to work in this situation? How can I see you better because of my, my suffering and my circumstances? Um, finally, in closing, there's a song that we've sung here, and it goes like this. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. What is it like to move from blindness to sight in the spiritual realm? Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. When did the grace become precious in, in the, the hymnal, uh, the hymnist's sight? The hour I first believed. Previous to that, what was, his, what was the state of his heart? Fear. <laughs> right? T'was grace that taught my heart to fear and then relieved my fears. If you're sitting here today and you go, oh boy, I'm not sure I've been seeing things rightly. I'm, I might be blind. I might be blind. I'm, I might not even recognize that when I come to the word of God and to the face of Christ that I come as a blind man. Um, that's terrifying. It's, it's, it can be very scary. And yet... Just like the blindness in this man was, was brought from birth so that the work of God might be in his life. Maybe your life story up to this point exists because God wants to show you your blindness spiritually so that he might do a transforming work in your life. And if this has been your story, that your fear of him has been by grace transformed into something that's precious and, and you now have sight Go and share that this week. Don't be afraid to talk about your former spiritual blindness and what it means to really see Jesus. Let's pray.